2: Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
1: Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today we have a special guest, our first repeat guest. And it might be showing my NESCAC bias. And it also might be that Chris's first interview conversation has been the best performing podcast that we've done by a lot. And so it begged the question that we needed to to get Chris back on here. So we're going to jump right into it. But if people want to learn more about Chris or his firm, you can go to the previous episode on the timeline, and we do a lot of background on himself and his shop, which is really interesting. But for purposes of this conversation, we're going to kind of hop right into it. So Chris Cerrone from Acre Capital Management, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks, Brian. It's it's awesome to be back. We had a lot of fun last time, so it's great to be here again.
1: Yeah, 100%. So today we're going to talk about quality and how you all define quality. And then to roadmap the conversation a little bit, That concept of quality comes from a shareholder letter that your founder principal wrote in 1988. Obviously, a lot of time has passed, but maybe not much has changed. But I want to really dig into that kind of pillar of quality concept that you all use from your bottom-up analysis. How does that help guide decision-making process today in 2021, given the craziness happening in the marketplace? So, could you maybe kind of walk us through that original shareholder letter, what it said? You revisited it, I know, a couple of years ago as well, to maybe update it, just to give some people some context about where we're going to go moving forward.
3: Yeah. So I think this is a really interesting place to start. So the the background, I think this is useful. So our founder, Chuck Ockrey, came into this business actually with an English degree. And so he was really a blank Canvas. And he asked the very basic question, the first principles question, what makes a great investment? And he looked not just at equities, but he looked across all different asset classes. And the culmination of that exploration was this letter, which he wrote to some of our clients back in 1988. And he concluded, he basically said that nirvana in investing can be defined as finding a company with the following characteristics. Number one, it's a superior business. Number two, it's exceptionally well-managed. And number three, that the managers can reinvest the naturally occurring excess capital as well as they run the business enterprise. And so all these years later, those listeners who know us well will have heard us talk about something we call the three-legged stool. And that really is just the symbol of this nirvana definition that Chuck first articulated in 1988. And virtually nothing has changed about that basic framework for all these years, which is pretty remarkable and to me speaks to the longevity of that basic concept. There's a repeatability of it, which is really great. Chuck has been able to share his insights with my partner, John, and I and our research associates so that we can take this basic framework and basically apply it in, in today's environment. There's just something I think really special about a process that can be articulated in, in the 80s and still be held on to and adhered to this many years later.
1: And what struck me, and we've all heard you know, a lot of people listening to this will have heard Buffett and read his axioms and, and know about it. And it's one thing to nod your head and say, that makes a ton of sense. But what really struck me was, especially given what's happening within crypto and finance and SPACs and all of these Wall Street products, is how unsexy this approach is. Like It's very simple. And you referenced this on the first conversation, but it's also pretty boring for you guys a lot of the time. Like You don't do a lot most of the time until you find windows where you can execute on this plan. And that's where you really have to have a lot of conviction. It's really interesting
3: today, as you said, there are, I think, venture capital, cryptocurrency, SPACs, there are all these financial innovations, there are pockets of the investing world that are new, and they're dynamic, and they're getting a lot of attention. And we're asked about them frequently. And the honest answer is, we don't always have an answer for every single one of these things but the good news is we don't really have to because we can fall back to the strategy which Chuck first articulated all those years ago and it works and we talked a lot on that first podcast about the power of compounding and you know the sort of first principle about compounding and Charlie Munger said this is the most important thing there is don't interrupt it unnecessarily and so if you can find a couple handfuls or a couple dozen of exceptional businesses that fit this three-legged stool criteria. And then you can hold on to those businesses for years. I mean, our turnover routinely is, is in the single digits. Yeah, some people might describe that as boring, but the results are if you're a client and you're experiencing those powers of compounding, then I, I don't think that result is boring. But it, you know, we do all of this in Middleburg, Virginia, which is a small resort village in in the Virginia Piedmont. Our offices here are actually in a renovated tavern, which before that was a Ford dealership. So we like to keep things simple. We like it quiet. The setting suits the strategy. And with all the activity and frenetic innovation going on in some of the finance capitals, we're really happy to be where we are here.
1: And I love this motto that Chuck put out there in the letter, which we'll put a link to the newsletter in the show notes because it's not terribly long either, which is great. No, it's not this like tome. Huge missive, you know, like an Oak Point chapter book. It says, happiness comes from small improvements. How does that work in actuality when you're looking at a company?
3: So happiness, where that starts, the first place that I ever saw that quote, John Train actually wrote a chapter on Warren Buffett in his book, Money Masters of Our Time. I think it was originally in Money Masters and then the book was updated over the years, but that quote stayed in there. And what he said at the time was that happiness comes from small improvements, not by getting somewhere once and for all. And so that's something that Chuck will repeat to us frequently. It's in this letter. It's probably the most repeated piece of advice I give out to other people, actually. And I think what it means to me personally, is that this is all a journey and you have to love the journey. And so there's a certain dedication to the craft that comes along with that. And we know with time we'll make mistakes, but that, you know, hopefully there's another great saying that Chuck has, which is, you know, we're lucky in this business if we learn something new every day, and we're doubly lucky if it doesn't cost us too much. And so I think it it just speaks to the constant learning that, you know, this process, this journey that we're all on as investors and it's really important to, to stay humble and to sort of keep
1: that beginner's mind. We talk internally in our company about improving a specific vertical or function of, of our enterprise 1% a month, which doesn't seem like a lot, but 1% month over month, you're talking 10 to 12% annual improvements is considerable. But I think if you go out the gate saying like, we're going to do 10% in a year, it's really daunting. And you think, okay, I've got to make these huge Fundamental shifts, and it, it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. But it does seem like, and this is kind of one of the questions I wanted to get into with you. I agree with the approach, but in today's market, with things happening so quickly and with such fewer public companies to invest in, and the ones that maybe are coming online now, they're not profitable. You know, you've got, like you referenced, <laughs> venture capital, SPACs, these big tech companies that are burning through cash. I mean, how do you? sift through the the wheat and the chaff?
3: Well, I think the the key, so there's actually a, a really important pairing that goes on. And the first piece is quality, which is what we're talking about. But then the second piece is discipline. And those two things really have to go together. You know, if you go back and you study the nifty 50, which was a fascinating period of time, those were fantastic businesses back then. I mean, they embodied quality. They had survived the recession of the late 60s. Most of those businesses had continuously increased their dividends from World War II onward. There were you know, above average growth expectations for those businesses. And so the nifty 50 investors were spending all their time just picking favorites, and they sort of failed to notice that they were paying these really high prices. And so they're buying great businesses, but the returns that they got on those businesses were dismal over, over short periods of time, over the subsequent five years. And so I mentioned that because I think in this environment, to your point, there's a lot of noise. There probably always is a lot of noise. I think in the moment, maybe we forget about just how much noise there was you know, in, in years prior, but it really is important to stay disciplined, be discerning. Remember that you only have to do a few things well over an entire investing career to really get where you want to go. So you don't have to participate in the vast majority of what's going on out there. And I think that's what we just continuously remind ourselves. You know, Our portfolios, again, are between sort of 12 and 24 holdings. And we've owned most of those businesses for well more than five years. In some cases, we've owned them for decades. And there's a real high bar for us to add anything new or to subtract anything. And when we do, so this is sort of interesting, I think we have come up the learning curve more recently on some of these technology businesses. And we've made some important additions to the portfolio, bringing some of these technology companies, software companies in, but we did it our way. And so we said, look, we we recognize that there are some really exceptional characteristics inherent to software companies. These are essential services Often for their customers. There's a recurring nature to their revenue streams. They're able to raise prices if they need to. They're asset-like businesses. But as you mentioned, there are a whole lot of them that don't make any money today. And there are a lot of them that trade at valuations that ascribe a lot to a terminal value decades from now, and very little to anything that's happening today. And there are a lot of them that have, I would say, tenuous competitive advantage. And so, you know, going back to this framework that Chuck laid out. So the first leg of the stool, the first item in that three-part definition of nirvana was superior businesses. And so the way that we think about superior businesses is we say, does this business have competitive advantage, durable competitive advantage? Does it have superior growth potential? Is there an element of anti-fragility? And ideally, we'd love to see recurring revenues and earnings. And so can we find something in the software world that checks all of those boxes? And can we pay a price for it where we feel like we're really focused on today and tomorrow's free cash flow generation, not today, tomorrow, and 10 and 20 and 30 years from now's free cash flow generation. And we have to be right about 30 years from now in order for the investment to work out for our clients. And we've done that. And I think one business in particular that we've added to the portfolio more recently, one of our portfolios more recently is, is Salesforce.com. And you know, I, I usually sort of shy away from talking about individual businesses because I think it can affect our thinking and it can make it harder for us to change our mind if I'm on record talking about a business. But I think just for illustrative purposes, I think this could be helpful. When we think about software, there are a lot of fast-growing software businesses out there which have great products. And that more or less is the reason why they're doing so well is the strength of those products that they have. The issue for us, and we're sitting in Middleburg, Virginia, we're not sitting in in Silicon Valley, is I don't necessarily have a great seat to monitor all of the sort of up-and-coming venture-funded, stealth mode, new software companies that are on the horizon. right? And so It would be really difficult for me to invest in a business where I felt like the most important contributing factor to their success was a product that was better than anything else that existed on the market, because I just don't know whether or not tomorrow there'll be something else that's better. And so what we try to do is we look back to those I don't know if I'd call them boring, but it's just the plain vanilla variety competitive advantages that we've all gotten used to talking about for decades, scale economies, network effects, cornered resources. And can we say that this company has checks the box on a few of those other categories of competitive advantage that gives it more staying power. And so a company like Salesforce has a few things going for it. In addition to the fact that, that their customers really rely on their products, you know they have probably one of the top couple enterprise sales forces in all of software, maybe behind Microsoft, so that they're in the sort of C-suite offices of the Fortune 500 talking about their products. When they bring something new online, they already have an audience with these really important customers. I think they don't necessarily have to have the best product at all times because they have better access to that audience. Another example is they've done a really nice job of building what they call the Salesforce economy, where you have app developers who are developing customizations on the Salesforce platform, which makes the product better for the users, encouraging there to be more users, which encourages there to be more app developers. And so there's a nice positive feedback loop that occurs there. And you also have this entire economy of consultants and, and professional services firms that are living off of installing Salesforce for customers and servicing those installations. And so you have a lot of people outside of the the walls of Salesforce's offices. Working on behalf of that sort of Salesforce economy, and and that also, I think, lends longevity and durability to what they're trying to do. So I use this as an example of how we take what we've been doing for decades and just trying to identify businesses that have solid competitive advantages that are run by exceptional managers, people who we trust and respect who have corporate cultures with clarity of purpose, who have corporate ethoses that we can relate to, and then the third leg of the stool who can reinvest the excess cash flow and then we can apply it to some of these more dynamic aspects of the market. And again, it all comes down to price, so we felt like we paid a good price there.
1: Is quality the same as value
3: investing? It's really interesting there for a long time were two camps, there was quality and then there was growth and there was value and I've started to hear more and more that quality is sort of a third bucket. I don't know how much overlap there is, if there's a Venn diagram of quality, value, and growth. I think we would agree with Buffett's sort of, you know, he's sort of objected to this notion that there's value versus growth. Because of course, at the end of the day, if you believe that the value of a business is the present value of its future cash flows, then you're incorporating growth back into what you think you can pay for an asset today. And then value comes in when you compare what you think that business is worth to the price that's available today. And so the two are, are really are linked and, and can't really be separated, I don't think. Quality comes into the equation, I think, because if you have quality, then you probably have greater confidence in the growth that you're projecting. And there's a greater degree of durability there. And that's really important to getting that projection right. When you say, you know, these are what I think the free cash flows will be over 20 years, if you're talking about a business that's competitively very vulnerable versus a business that is really entrenched, I think you can have a lot more confidence in the entrenched business's free cash flows. And so you can make a better decision when it comes down to the value part of it. And so I think they're all interrelated and we don't really make that distinction here.
1: So- We've already been going for 30 minutes. This happened the last time too. We haven't even gotten to inflation yet. Yeah, and I, and I don't want this to be such an episodic conversation that it can't be evergreen Sure. because inflation is something that we always deal with, right? But we are in a place and we're recording in October of 2021 where you know, there's a huge debate, probably the, the biggest debate in finance and economics today, is inflation transitory? Is it permanent are we entering into a hyperinflationary state? Should we be more worried about stagflation and Japan type malaise or even deflation, which seems to not really be in the conversation, but some people are talking about it. How do you think about inflation today and how does it impact this bottoms up analysis you're doing within your portfolio? So I'm going to attempt to make this into
3: a seamless segue, but before we jump off of quality, One thing that I'm really passionate about and that I spend a lot of time thinking about is, so we've talked a lot about quality in the context of the types of investments that we're seeking. And I think generally speaking, most of the conversation about quality does center around businesses specifically, and I think for good reason. And that's really what Chuck was talking about when he was playing out the three characteristics that define nirvana and in investing. But then you asked me about this idea of happiness comes from small improvements. And when we were talking about that, I think we started to actually jump over and talk about quality in terms of process. And that's, to me... A really interesting and important aspect of the way that we approach investing. And so we touched on this. It it goes to this idea that there's a journey and that we have to be dedicated to our craft. It also, it goes to this idea of beginner's mind, which is really important. So there's this, I have a plaque here sitting on my desk. It's a quote by Richard Feynman, who was a Nobel award winning physicist. He was also part of the Los Alamos team that worked with Robert Oppenheimer on the atomic bomb and the quote is i have approximate answers and possible beliefs and different degrees of certainty about different things but i'm not absolutely sure about anything and there are many things i don't know anything about and i absolutely love that because i think again there's a certain humility in this this is a guy who has probably you know this an IQ that's far above anything that I have. And if he's willing to say, look, I don't know much about a lot of things. And the things that I think I know something about, I only know with various degrees of certainty. I just think that it's just a great constant reminder for us. And so part of, and this is where I think it it segues into inflation, is part of having quality in process, I think, is developing frameworks. And it's about studying history. And I think that's how we've tried to answer this inflation question is we've tried to go back and look at what has happened historically. And we've tried to use history to help us build a framework for thinking about, should we find ourselves in an inflationary environment? What types of investments do you want to own in your portfolio that will sort of best protect you? And so Maybe, do you think that, did I pull off that segue? Can we run with that now? And then I, my quality plug
1: in on process? We're going to run with it. But I I think that's a good point, right? Inflation is something that is always around us. And when you're doing a bottoms up analysis, when you're thinking about investing into a name or a company or an alternative investment, real estate, whatever, inflation's part of the equation, right? It's a multifactorial thought process. And maybe inflation is given greater weight today versus five years ago, But it's still part of that conversation, and it should still be part of this quality analysis of, okay, if we are entering into an inflationary state, how will this name or this company perform, right? I mean, that's the takeaway that I got.
3: Well, and the spoiler alert here is that the framework that we've developed for thinking about investments that sort of protect the investor most during periods of inflation ends up identifying quality businesses as being the place that you want to be, as defined by some of the things that we often talk about, pricing power, control over expenses, and low asset intensity. Again, that's sort of the bottom line of the entire exercise. And so when we think about our portfolio, the conclusion is really we're very well positioned just the way that we are now without really having to make any changes. But that's, and so I think that absolutely goes to this idea of quality and and they go together really nicely,
1: which is great. Could you go through those three bullets again? Yeah. Pricing
3: power. The three, let me back up for a second and then I'll go the whole arc on this, I think is probably useful to how we get there. The three are pricing power. You want businesses that have pricing power. You want businesses that have control over their costs. So that includes both an insulation against wage inflation. And it means that they're insulated against input cost and supply chain disruption and inflation. And then the third aspect is you want low levels of capital intensity. So that both applies to your physical plant and equipment. It also applies to the networking capital in the business. And we can really explain Each of those pieces individually. But you said, you know, inflation is multifactorial, and and that's absolutely right. The bottom line is that inflation is usually painful for just about everybody. And you can go back and read annual reports from the late 70s and early 80s, and there wasn't a company that was saying, look, this is great. You know, inflation is running in the low teens, and we're loving it. I mean, everyone is being impacted negatively, some way or another, and it impacts the businesses in a variety of different ways. But those are sort of your lines of defense. If you can raise prices, if you can control your expenses, and if you don't have to constantly reinvest your scarce free cash flow to replace and maintain your physical assets, you're in a much better place than most American businesses will be in a period of higher inflation. In fact, back in those days, it's pretty interesting. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know it until we looked. FASB actually required businesses from, I believe, 1976 to the early 80s to disclose a different set of financial statements that were inflation adjusted to capture just how profound the impact of inflation was on the expense lines for these businesses. I mean, it was a totally different world. And what's interesting is, you know, so inflation has averaged three to four percent since 1900. And so that means we played some number games the first time we were on so I thought this would be interesting maybe to listeners. So basically something that you could have purchased for a $1 dollar in 1920 100 years ago would take $12.50 to buy today. I mean that's the long-term corrosive impact of just low levels of inflation. There've been a couple higher periods after both world wars and then around sort of the great inflation late 60s into the early 80s. But what's interesting is the last Period of above average inflation. So, if average is three to four, the last period of above average inflation was late 80s, early 90s. And then you have to go back to this great inflation to really see extended levels of double digit type inflation. And so, what that means is an investor would have to be 50 years old to have experienced the last period of elevated inflation. And no investor younger than 60 experienced The double digit inflation of the late 70s and early 80s. And so, a pretty prominent investor recently made the comment that inflation is probably the most important macroeconomic wild card that we have in the market today. And I think it's just fascinating that very few market participants have really any firsthand experience with it at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, when my dad, who is, gosh, 70 ish, talks about his mortgage when he bought his first home in 19. 80, 81. I think his note was 12%, 14%. Yeah. It's not fathomable to me. Like, I don't understand fundamentally how that could possibly work. And, and to your point, there's a generation of people who, who have never experienced anything close to that. And I don't even know what that would look like. I mean, it would, I think things would go haywire personally. Well, so just to give you an idea of how great we've had it.
3: So since 1900, we said inflation has been three to 4%. Over that same period of time, equity markets have returned on average about 10%. So your real rate of return has been six or 7% over that period compounded. If you look at. Since 2010, the S&P 500 has compounded at 15% and inflation has averaged around 2%. So the real rate of return that we've had over the last 11 years has been roughly 13%. So almost double the long-term average in real terms. And so if you just think about what proportion of market participants have been investing since 2010 or later, it's been a pretty Goldilocks period of time and inflation has not been top of mind at all. And so now it is. And I like to say I'm not a practicing economist, even though my days in the NESCAC at Tufts were spent earning an economics degree. And so I'm really not the person to go into detail on sort of why inflation is is a concern now. I think people generally understand the fiscal and monetary stimulus over the last 18 months has been pretty unprecedented. And I'm also really not the person to say where inflation is headed from here, because as you know, we like to stay away from making any sort of macroeconomic forecasts and we like to think about things really from the bottom up. But I think we have absolutely studied the, the issue and said, okay, well, should we find ourselves in a period of elevated inflation, you know, where do you want to put your capital? Do you want to and people will think of TIPS, Treasury inflation protected securities where the real rate of return right now is negative one. So that's not very satisfactory. People will think of gold, of course. The issue there is there's really no cash flow. So it's difficult to value. And in real terms, gold is where it was in 1980 at its peak. And the price of gold declined 75% from that peak in 1980 to 2000. So there's definitely a buyer beware there. And so that's not very interesting to me. And so then the final place where we end up saying, look, should we be in this elevated period of inflation? I think the best place to be is, is in certain common stocks. And I say certain common stocks because again it goes back to this framework where we we sort of we did the spoiler and we said it's common stocks and businesses that can increase their earnings in proportion to the rate of inflation which requires some level of pricing power that don't also require a corresponding increase in the fixed assets of the business and that's sort of that's the framework and we can dig into each of those if you'd like or I know we're we're maybe stretching on time but I think it's a fascinating subject so I, I'm here as long as you want to talk about it
1: no i think that's useful Maybe what would be helpful, and I ask most of my guests this: What are resources that you use? What do you read? What do you listen to? You know, you've referenced you're obviously a bookworm, which is great. You're a student of history, which is, you know, a head nod to your liberal arts. You know, the wonderful academia of NESCAC schools. <laughs> but I mean, if people are worried. I always find myself when I get anxious about something and I get concerned, I think learning about it, understanding it is a really good way to put up frameworks to make big decisions around them. Mm -hmm. So what are you reading? What are you listening to? What historical resources do you lean on about inflation specifically to make these investment decisions? I think that would be maybe a a useful tactical approach to it.
3: So... We've done it a few different ways. I think the most useful literature in terms of investing in a period of inflation would be Warren Buffett's shareholder letters in 1980 and 1981, because he did a really nice job in those letters of explaining just how destructive inflation can be. And he also spoke at length at this idea of pricing power and lack of asset intensity. He spoke about the issues associated with capital-intensive businesses in particular. And I think that's really important. Maybe it's a little bit counterintuitive. So I found that really helpful. Beyond that, as I mentioned, we've gone back and we've studied primary resources. So annual reports for businesses that were publicly traded during past periods of elevated levels of inflation. I think that was really eye-opening for us. We, Of course, there are a lot of commentators talking about inflation today. And and some of those letters are interesting. But I would really stick with if you followed me through sort of There are a number of asset classes that people tend to think of first when they think about inflation. And we talked about tips. We talked about gold. Sometimes people talk about real estate and then equities are usually in there as well. If if you followed me through that and you sort of landed on the same place where I landed, which is that high quality equities with pricing power and low capital intensity is where you want to be, then I think that those Buffett letters are really helpful. And then from there, you can start looking for businesses that that check those
1: boxes. And you referenced this before we went live I would love to hear how you marry these historical documents, which are really useful to reference these letters from the 80s. I'm going to look them up, and we'll try to include some links as well. But you talked about how, and this might be episode three that we do with you, because you have a <laughs> whole article about this advice you give to young people. It's really good, but I want to tease it a little bit. You talked about your decision-making journals and how mm-hmm. you like you commit to these things in writing. And you do the painful exercise of going back and realizing, well, I got that wrong. But can you explain maybe how you use these older historical documents or reference points and and then how you do your actionable day-to-day investment decision-making processes?
3: So we try, I think studying history is is something that I find is just fascinating to me to go back. And I mentioned earlier, John Train's Money Masters book. I think that's one of the all-time greats because, in first of all, he's just an exceptional and beautiful writer. So it's a real joy to read. But you have, in 15 to 30 pages, profiles on some of the greatest investors of all time, some of whom we really don't think about or hear much about anymore. But their ideas are really very relevant today, I think. Just like Chuck's letter from 1988 is very relevant today. I mean, some of these folks just aren't investing anymore. And so it's, it's incredibly helpful. We actually have something of a book club here where we go back and we read. We spent time on each chapter of the book and said, what really resonated with you about T. Rowe Price? What resonated about you, you know, with you about George Soros? Or I think that's really important. Studying the nifty 50 is important. Going back and studying inflation is really important. And then writing as a tool for refining the ideas and uncovering the inconsistencies. And so that's where a decision journal comes in. So as you're doing these case studies, you're always writing this stuff down. And then every once in a while, there's this great consolidation where you go through your writing, your journal, and you say... How does this stuff fit together? Are there common threads that run throughout that allow us to simplify everything and say it more simply? There's this going back to Richard Feynman, he talked about, and I don't remember what the exact quote was, but over time in physics, there would be these great consolidations where they would realize that all of these disparate theories and the hypotheses all work together. And it was one incredibly simple law that they discovered and everything collapsed into that simple law. And I'm always trying to think about this in terms of the unified theory of investing of Chris Cerrone, right? Not everybody's going to be different, but bringing all these different things together. And I think, and then you mentioned the decision journal. So I have my investing journal, and then I have our decision journal where We do. We write down for every investment we think about making, we say, how could this be the greatest investment we've ever made? How could this be the worst investment we ever make? What are the key numbers that we should remember today? What was the valuation? What was our expected rate of growth? The date and price, obviously, that we're looking at it. What we ultimately decided goes into the conclusion section, and then we leave space for dissenting opinions. Something like a Supreme Court case where if we ended up passing on it, but I felt like we probably should have moved ahead, I can write a little dissenting opinion. Or if somebody else on the team feels strongly that we're probably not making the right decision, they can put that down as well. And I think that's really important. And that's all just part of this idea of holding ourselves accountable. And I think it goes back to having quality and process. And I love this stuff and we could talk endlessly about it. I'm glad you mentioned that piece, the advice for aspiring investors, because you know we get a lot of questions from young people who want to become investors. And I decided that maybe it would be worthwhile to just write down some of the more common pieces of advice that I give out and, and that's all there. And And that's available on our website as well.
1: And that's going to be interview three. So let's interview three. We're not going to open the box today, but keep it shut. um, (laughs) We can keep it shut. And we're bumping up against time, but as always, this has just been terrific. So I want to thank you for carving out some of your headspace on a Friday. I'll end on this one. We'll kind of, because we already covered a lot of ground, and I'm going to hold you to account here (laughs) on your decision making journal. Navy has a big game against number two in the nation ranked Cincinnati football. They got any shot? You're going to put something in writing here? Put it in the the time capsule? Maybe Cincinnati
3: is this weekend in Annapolis at Navy. You know, I've learned to appreciate that Navy plays a different breed of football. They run Mm. the triple option, which I had never encountered before. It's, It's either the quarterback runs, the running back runs, or the fullback runs. But what they do really well is they eat up time of possession. And so they take away the number of possessions that the opposing team is going to have. They they reduce it so that it forces the opposition to be really efficient. So I think Cincinnati is going to be a little tough to handle for Navy. And I would, I'd say 28, okay. 10 Cincinnati. We'll circle back in a couple of months and the tape will tell. Yeah. I might not be able to show my face in Annapolis now.
1: <laughs> I think it'll be okay. You know, okay. as a Vanderbilt fan, you know, you want to see your team succeed, but at the same time, as somebody with children, the father of two boys, there are lessons to be derived from suffering. And so, you know, I wish you the best of luck. Hopefully the weather's good and, and you know, the beer's cold, as my dad says, when, you know, your football team's bad. But Chris, you know, I want to thank you again. has been awesome. I would love to have you back on. Your first one was been the best performing episode we've ever done. We'll include all the content information, but if people want to learn more about you and the firm, what is the best way for them to get in touch?
3: So I think the best place to go is OcreekCapital.com. Is and there's contact information. There's a lot of material we, we put out there. We try to have white papers with evergreen content so people can learn a little bit more about how we think about the world. And we're here in Middleburg, Virginia. So you know, if anybody's willing to make the trek, we're always happy to carve out a little time and say hello. So those are all good ways to reach out. We're always very appreciative of the interest, and this is such a great forum. And you ask such thoughtful questions, and and I really have fun every time we do it. I can't believe the time goes by as quickly as it does. So part three is is absolutely something I'll look forward to.
1: Well, you know, from part one to two, you're now looking at tech companies. So part three, you're going to be like this crypto king, and Lord only knows where you're going to be headed. So maybe things will get crazy. We'll find out. Stay tuned. Later. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Chris, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it.
3: All right. Thanks, Brian. Bye.
2: Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like rate or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.